constant uh, reminder that God is. Thank you, Rhonda and Ike, for that song, Be Still and Know That I Am God. The Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I think it is the epitome of foolishness to not believe in God. That's not the thrust of this series that I started last week. Rather, I want to expose and offer a cure for another form of atheism, which I think is equally foolish, and that's practical atheism. R.C. Sproul said, What is deadly to the church is when the external forms of religion are maintained while their substance is discarded. Or, as the Apostle Paul put it, they have a form of religion but they deny the power thereof. He said, we call this practical atheism. And practical atheism appears when we live as if there is no God. You see, the atheist believes, or at least claims he believes, there is no God. The practical atheist affirms the existence of God, even says he believes in Him, but lives day-to-day as if he doesn't exist. And I believe that this form of atheism is an even greater threat to the church today than true atheism because many practical atheists make up the modern church. According to the Scriptures, it's the fool who says there is no God, but with God's help, I'd like to show you that it's also the fool who says there is a God but lives as if there is not. The practical atheist is just as much the fool as the true atheist. So in this series, I want to show you five evidences of a practical atheist. Last week, we looked at the evidence, number one, no accountability. In other words, the practical atheist says, you know what? God doesn't really see my sin. God overlooks my sin. God excuses my sin. I'm really not going to have to give account for the things that I do here in this world. They live like they can get away with sin. They think that God's always going to just overlook and excuse it and just pat them on the rear end and send them on their little merry way. The Bible says that's not true. All of us must give account of ourselves before God. There's another evidence this morning I want to share with you, and that is the evidence that there no trust, no confidence in God. And this is manifested in three ways. First of all, the person that says or feels or thinks, maybe consciously or even subconsciously, God doesn't love me. God couldn't love me. God doesn't really care about me. So why should I love Him? Why should I worship Him? Why should I follow Him? I want to use the children of Israel and Moses as an illustration this morning as we trace these manifestations of this evidence of no trust and no confidence in God because I believe it illustrates for us, it'll give us a mirror of of kind of our own lives, of how we live like practical atheists, how we have little or no trust or confidence in our God. Turn to Exodus chapter 1 or you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation just for this passage this morning, because I like the way that they expressed um, a few of these things in here. 
Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family. Now you remember that uh, uh, Joseph had uh, been taken captive you know, by the, uh, into Egypt. He served Potiphar. Then he, he got to be exalted into Pharaoh's court, and he was the prime minister of the land of Egypt. And, of course, then... All the family of all of his family, his father Jacob and all of his brothers and their wives, 70 people in all, we'll see in this passage, moved to Egypt and began to multiply. That's what this passage tells us. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us, then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. 400 years the children of Israel were slaves in a foreign land. This was not the land that God had promised to give them through Abraham. And here they are in this period of time where it seems that God has forgotten them. God is silent. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Maybe they think like perhaps you have thought, if there is a God, surely he has forgotten about me. But we see in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, that the children of Israel groaned, because of the bondage. Have you ever groaned because of your problems? Groaned and, and, and been under such a heavy weight in your life? Did you feel like God hasn't done anything? God has forgotten you. God doesn't know what's going on in your life. And it says they groaned. It says that they cried out. And that their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. What's interesting is that God knows what you're going through. God knows your life. He has not forgotten you. But what maybe you don't know is what the Israelites didn't know. They were not aware of God's awareness of their problem. And maybe that's the way you feel. God's not aware of my problem. My friends, He is aware, but maybe you're not aware that He's aware. Maybe you don't think He cares. Maybe you think that God has forgotten you, and therefore you have ceased to have any kind of connection with, with God. Day to day. And I'm not talking about just showing up on church on Sunday. I'm talking about 
day to day as you live your life. Living like God doesn't know about your life. That's a practical atheist. That's saying God is not omniscient. That's saying there's not an all-knowing God out there. Or that God doesn't care. That's a practical atheist saying that God, if He does exist, doesn't really care. He's way off out there somewhere, busy holding the stars in place, but He doesn't care about little old me. I'm nobody. I'm small. I'm insignificant. You know, I've often heard people say that. I don't want to bring this matter to God. I'm, I, I, it's just insignificant. It's just, you know, I don't want to bother God. Listen, that's atheism talking. You think God is too small? So small that you can't bring Him your problems, whatever they are? Do you think that's small of God? Do you think that little of God, that, that you can bother God? You can bother me. You can bother your spouse. You can bother your parents, but you can't bother God. God's omnipotent. There's nothing too big, nothing too small that He doesn't already know about your life, that He doesn't want you to talk to Him about. You can't bother the omnipotent. And He cares. You think, I'm unnoticeable. I'm hidden. God doesn't see. I'm not special. There are many people in this congregation today that don't feel like they're special. In fact, I would imagine 99.9% .9 of you feel, I'm not special. Maybe even 100% of you. I'm not special to anybody. I don't matter. But listen, God is a compassionate God. He cares. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Here was a wee little man. It says in verse 2 he was chief tax collector and he was wealthy. You say, I don't even have that going for me. But he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Some of you feel like you're in a crowd of people, but you just don't matter. You're just a wee little person. Maybe not physically, but in the grand scheme of things, you just feel very insignificant like Zacchaeus. So he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. For Jesus was going to be passing that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today, I'm going to stay at your house. He looked up in the tree, and he saw him. Jesus sees you. You're not insignificant. He cares. He knows. He loves you. For God so loved the world. That's you. God is love. That's God. The Bible says in Psalm 139, verse 17 and 18, you say, God doesn't really think about me. He's too busy. Listen, you're talking about the omnipotent. You can be too busy. God can't be too busy. He's omnipotent. 
I can only focus on one thing at a time. I can usually only think about one thing at a time. Oh, there are other thoughts swirling around in my head, but I can't focus on those thoughts. I can only focus on one thing at a time, one person at a time, one task at a time. But that's not God. God's not too busy. You can't busy the omnipotent, all-powerful. Except God doesn't think about me. God's got all these other people. There's people dying of cancer. He's thinking about them, but he ain't thinking about me. I got it. I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I'm not hurting. I, he's, he's, he's thinking about all those Christians over there that are being killed for their faith, but he's not thinking about me. Listen, God can think of you and everybody else on the face of this earth at the exact same time. I mean, you think about this. Today's Sunday. All over the world, churches are gathering in his name. All over the world, Christians are lifting up his name in praise. All over the world, pastors are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, wherever two or more gather in his name, there he is. you think he's just here in Dawson Street? Or do you think he's in all the other churches all over the world? He's everywhere. He's very noticeable. Noticing what you're doing. He's thinking of you all the time. Psalm 139, 17 says, how precious. Hear that word, precious are your thoughts to me, O oh God. You say, well, yeah, God thinks about me, all right. He thinks I'm a low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel. He thinks he's about ready to take me out of this world because I keep messing up. God says, how precious are my thoughts towards you. And how great is the sum of them. David said, if I could count them, they would be more in number than the sand. God hadn't forgotten you. But sometimes we live like he has. We don't trust him, even when he's silent. Even when we're going through the valley of the shadow. Even when we're in the wilderness. Even when we're under oppression. And it doesn't seem like God is there. God still sees. God still knows. There's another way this is manifested this lack of trust and confidence in God. People say or think subconsciously, God doesn't forgive me. My sin is too great. My sins are too many. Going back to Moses, Moses wasn't a perfect man. In fact, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, that uh, he killed a man. Moses was a murderer. And it was pre, well, you could say it was not necessarily premeditated, but he just saw that an Egyptian was beating one of the Hebrew men, and he planned, I'm, and he went and killed that Egyptian. We read in Numbers chapter 21 that uh, God told Moses that Mo the children of Israel began to cry out because they were thirsty as they were wandering in the wilderness after they had left Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness and they began to cry out to God. Actually, they began to complain to Moses, we're thirsty. Where are we going to get some water? And, and this is after a series of many gripes and complaints against uh, God and Moses. Moses goes, he and Aaron fall on their face before God and God says, get up Moses and, and you go speak to that rock and and water will come out. And Moses goes out and he strikes the rock twice. And he says, 
Do we have to provide water for you, O rebellious Israel? He was mad. He was ticked off. So he's a murderer. He's an angry man. And God said, God punished Moses. He said, Moses, because you didn't obey me and you didn't hallow my name before Israel, you're not going in the promised land. Moses was a sinful man. But you know, and then I got thinking, did Moses ever get to go to the promised land? God told him in Numbers chapter 27, you and Aaron go up on top of the mountain and you look that way and you'll see the promised land, but you're not going in it because of your sin. Aaron couldn't go in it because he built the calf. Moses couldn't go in it because he, he didn't hallow God's name. Two of the leaders, the leaders, of course, then every adult 20 years old and older died in the wilderness because they wouldn't go into the promised land when God told them to because they didn't have faith and trust and confidence in God that he could defeat the giants in the land. But did Moses ever get to go to the promised land? The Bible says he did. Who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Who? Moses and Elijah. And where is the mountain of transfiguration? Well, it's in Israel. So God, and, and how did Moses get there? Moses came down from heaven and, and got to meet with Jesus in front of Peter and James and John. He actually did get to go to the promised land eventually. So there was forgiveness for Moses' sin, even though it was great. Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector. He cheated people out of their money. He would take more from them than they actually owed and keep it for himself. But it says when Jesus talked to him and told him he was going to his house, Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received Jesus joyfully. But when everybody else saw what was happening, they complained, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. You know what Zacchaeus is doing? He's admitting his sin to the Lord. And he's turning from it. He's repenting of his sin. And then Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, God wants you to know that, yes, you have sinned, but God is ready to forgive when you confess your sin and turn from your sin. The devil wants you to believe God won't forgive you. The Bible says in Psalm 86, 5, The Lord is good and ready to forgive. You say, but not this. He, he couldn't forgive this sin. This sin is, is too great. Well, remember the story. Remember Jesus died between two thieves. Well, they're called in the, new, the old King James male factors, which was a, just a term for a criminal. We don't know all what they were guilty of, but they were some bad men. And the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 23, the 
One of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed, are being justly punished for our sins. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was he doing? He was admitting his sin. He was placing his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Bible says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many years ago in Russia, a regiment of troops mutinied. They were at some distance from the capital and were so furious that they murdered their officers and resolved never to submit to discipline. But the Russian emperor, who was an exceedingly wise man, heard of that. And when alone and unattended, he went into the barracks where the men were. And he addressed them sternly and said to them, Soldiers, you have committed such offenses against the law that every one of you deserves to be put to death. There is no hope of any mercy for you unless... You lay down your arms immediately and surrender at, at discretion to me, your emperor. Right then and there, they laid down their arms. They surrendered to their emperor. And the emperor said, men, I pardon you. You will be the bravest troops I've ever had. And that's exactly what they became the bravest troops that emperor had ever had. You see, some of you are living under the guilt of your sin. And you think God won't forgive you. You think you're useless to God because of your sin. You're living like an atheist. You're saying to God, you're not a forgiving God. My sin is greater than your power to forgive. Do you, do you hear what you're saying to God? Do you hear how atheistic that sounds? How blasphemous that sounds? When the Bible says, you confess your sin. If you say you have no sin, you lie. But if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's another manifestation of this form of practical atheism. And that is not only that you don't trust God to love you and care for you, not only that you don't trust God to forgive you, but some don't trust God to act for them on their behalf. You know, in Exodus chapter 2, Moses, it says, and the Bible says in Hebrews, that he chose to suffer the reproaches of, of Christ uh, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. In other words, he, he forsake, forsook the house of Pharaoh. He was raised up in Pharaoh's home. He, was, he could have been in line to be the, the prime minister of Egypt, just like Joseph had been, second to Pharaoh. But he forsook Pharaoh's house and chose the reproach of the Israelites because he identified with the people of God. But yet, 
God wasn't doing anything. They were still being oppressed. They were still being beaten. One day Moses said, I've had enough. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And in chapter 2, that's when he killed the Egyptian. And see, that's where some of you are today, is that because you think God's not acting enough for you, God's not, God's not uh, working on your time schedule, you take matters into your own hands. Some of you are control freaks. You have to control everything because you don't know how to let go and trust God. And you're living like a practical atheist because you think if you don't control it, then it won't happen. That's atheism. That's a lack of trust in God. You've heard the phrase, the survival of the fittest. December the 8th, 1903, British philosopher and railway engineer Herbert Spencer transitioned into eternity, unable to survive the clutches of death. It was a little ironic, given the fact that he was the evolutionist who coined the phrase, survival of the fittest. Spencer believed the great law of nature is the constant action of forces which tend to change all forms from simple to the complex and that the more complex the species, the greater the chance of survival. Obviously, he never read, or perhaps he just didn't believe, the Creator's account of the development of all life. Our egos love to trust in our innate strength, our intellect, our determination to survive and to control. But God's plan for mankind had nothing to do with superiority. He wanted us to totally trust Him. The Apostle Paul grasped this truth when he said, I will more gladly boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God believes in the survival of the weakest. But some people live like, I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and if I don't do it, it won't get done. Well, certainly every one of us here today has responsibilities. We have a stewardship. But our responsibilities end at a certain point, and there are certain things you cannot control. And many people fret and worry over things they have no control over. They fret and worry about what's going to happen when they can't change it. And that's when you have to trust. But so many people either try to take the bull by the horns and control the situation, or they sit back and worry themselves sick. That's practical atheism. That's living as if God doesn't act on your behalf. In Exodus chapter 3, we find that God visited Israel when he came to Moses. And he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he said to Moses, verse 5, Don't draw near 
this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now listen, Moses committed murder. He had to flee, so he goes to the backside of the desert of Midian, and he's there for 40 years, and he didn't hear a peep from God. So here he is. He took matters into his own hands because he didn't think God was acting. He does something foolish, which is what we typically do when we don't think God is acting, when we take matters into our own hands. And then he had to flee for his life, and he's over here in the backside of the desert for 40 years taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, and he doesn't hear from God for 40 years until finally he sees a bush burning and God visits him. God appears to him and tells him, I am the God of your fathers. And he says in verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. Moses, these are not your people. These are my people. Which, and I, he says, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God was calling, he was acting, he was sending Moses. Moses had to wait. Notice also that there was a lack of trust still on Moses' part. Notice in verse 13 and 14, Moses said, but who am I? Who am I? Who am I? They're not going to listen to me. And you know what God, God's answer was? It's not about who am I, it's about who I am. I am the great I am. Moses, you need to get your focus off of you and get it on to me. God is the great I am. He's working on behalf of his people. He said, I've seen, I've heard, I know, and I've come down to deliver them. Listen, God sees, God knows, and God is acting. In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses still had this lack of trust. He said, they're not going to believe me. They're just not going to believe me. Moses, then God gave Moses these signs to perform in front of them. And then finally Moses said in chapter 10, uh, chapter 4, Well, I just, I'm just not a very good talker. I'm not very eloquent. How am I going to persuade them to follow me? How am I going to persuade them that, that you appeared to me? And that's what we do. God says, this is what I'm going to do. We've read it in His Word. We know he's faithful, but we still have questions to God. God, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. How many times you said yeah, but to God? I think God gets tired of yeah, buts. God just wants you to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I believe. I trust. I'll follow. I'll go. See, God wants to act, but his people won't let him because of their unbelief. Remember when he, Jesus went to Nazareth? His hometown? And it says he could not do, not would not, could not do many mighty works there because of what? Their lack of faith, their unbelief, their lack of trust. I wonder what God is not doing in the churches of America today because his people think he can't or he won't 
They don't believe in Him. They have all these excuses. I wonder if God's people would actually believe God to do something greater. What would He do? William Carey said, Do you expect great things from God? Then attempt great things for God. Let's, let's attempt in great faith and see what God will do. What did God do? Moses said, I don't know. I can't do it. I can't do this. Finally, God said, Moses, you're going. Basically, you don't have a choice. What did God do? He sent plague after plague after plague upon Egypt. Ten plagues. Things that had never been seen before. The Nile River turned to blood. That was an act of God. All these mighty acts of God. Finally, the last plague is death of the firstborn. And the only way Israel was spared was by the blood on the doorpost. The blood of the Lamb on the doorpost spared all the firstborn of Israel. Then they, Pharaoh finally says, get out. Get out. And so they get out. Boy, they get out as fast as they can. They come to the edge of the Red Sea, and there's a barrier. Oh, oh no. God told us to go. He, how are we going to get across the Red Sea? And they just forgot the ten plagues that God got them out of Egypt with. And here they are, quaking in their boots again. Don't we do the same thing? We forget what God had done in the past. And we look at that what's in for us and we start shaking and quaking. And then all of a sudden they turn around and here comes Pharaoh's army. Boy, they're hot on their heels. Pharaoh done changed his mind. And now they're really freaked out. What'd God do? He says he put a wall of fire between the Israelites and the Egyptian army. And then God caused an east wind to blow all night long. And he parted the Red Sea. And it says they walked across on dry ground. And then they get into the wilderness, and all of a sudden, they start complaining. Oh, we're going to die thirst. Duh. God just, ten plagues to get you out. Put a wall of fire, part of the Red Sea. Okay, he did all that just to let you die in the wilderness for thirst. But we're just like that. We're foolish. We live like practical atheists. We think God's not going to act. Oh, yeah, he did that, but he can't do this. And then finally, he raises up Joshua. And he leads them into the promised land and conquers city after city, giant after giant. Did God act for Israel? Did God act? God acted. Were they very faithful? No, indeed. Are you? I think we're a lot like Israel, don't you? But we're still His people, and God's going to act. And we need to trust our God to act on our behalf. God did act. God does act. God will act. Our problem is we have too small a view of God, which, in my opinion, is practical atheism. Our God's not big enough for this problem. I'm just going to throw in the towel give up. God can't help with this. How big is your God? How big is your God? What can you believe Him for today? Could you even be like Job? That if what you're asking Him to do doesn't come to pass, that you could say to God, God, my faith is not in the result that I'm seeking. My faith is in You. Job said, Lord, even though You slay me, I'm going to keep trusting in you.
You see, your faith is not to be in a desired outcome. Your faith is to be in the great I am. No matter what happens down here. Let's live. Not like atheists. But let's have a confidence in our God. A trust that says, I know God loves me. I know God cares for me. I know God forgives me. I know God acts on my behalf. Let's live like we really believe there is a God. And let's watch what he will do. Many a time he said to Israel, I'm going to do this so that the nations will know that there is a God in Israel. We want to live and watch God move so that the nations, so that the Gentiles, so that the unbelievers will know that there is a God. The way we live is proof or denial that there is a God. Are you living a life that proves that God is real? Or are you living a life that pretty much denies that He's real? Oh, but you say you believe in Him. Oh, but you say you're going to heaven when you die. But are you living a life day to day that is living proof that He's real? Can others look at your life and say, Wow, God is real. Look at what God is doing in their life. That's the kind of life God wants us to live. By God's grace, you and I can live it. By God's help, with God's strength. Let's pray together.